Now, we were talking about pride earlier in the show, but let's talk a little bit more about that general theme because in a time long before Panty Bar or even Panty Bliss, there was Danny LaRue, born in Cork in 1927. Uh, Danny LaRue, real name, Daniel Patrick Carroll, you can hear uh, singing just over my shoulder there, was such a trailblazer. He even received an OBE for his work in the entertainment industry and, of course, paved the way for later drag performers, not just from this country. Now, he was a pre-decriminalisation gay celebrity of Irish stock and it seems like a fitting weekend to look back at one of Ireland's and, indeed, one of Britain's most beloved entertainers. And Donald Fallon is here to help me do just that. Afternoon, Donald. How are you? Good to be here. Good to be here. Danny DeRue defied a lot of stereotypes. And it's fair to say that, particularly given the background, a complex character, to say the very least. Yeah, Daniel Patrick Carroll, or Danny LaRue, is a complex character. I mean, he's a devotedly Catholic man, a daily mass-goer uh, until his dying mass-goer, day. Really? And with a public persona, really, that was unrivaled. I mean, this person, more than anyone, brought drag performance into the homes of millions of people in these islands. Like, not just here, but you know, across mm. the UK and Ireland. And what Panty today is a household name. I mean, the streets for Panty, Rory O'Neill, were paved by others, you know, including Alan Amsby and the brilliant Danny LaRue, our subject now. So he fits into a lot of different historical tales. I mean, this is an Irish broadcaster and a media darling in the UK. And much like Terry Wogan, Graham Norton uh, and others, sometimes the British public think of these as British personas, Mm. but they're very much people that are made on the island of Ireland. How far back does the performance of drag actually go? Because if we're talking about someone here who was born in, in 1927... Was, was Danny LaRue at the very start of that arc or was there much of a history before him? The history of drag goes back a lot longer than, than most people may think. In fact, there's a, a 1933 German film called Victor and Victoria, which is kind of the first time that this made its leap onto the big screen. But even going back before that, you know, pantomime dames and kind of female uh, impersonators, mm. they would have been a kind of staple of like European cabaret and stage performance going back into like the late 19th century. But LaRue brought it to a totally new level. Okay, you know, and right. As one obituary said, at his peak in the 1970s, he was earning the equivalent of two million a year at four homes, a Rolls Royce and an entourage of 60. Now, an entourage of 60 following yeah. a drag queen around, you've done quite well. Yeah, you, do. <laughs> you, cer- you <laughs> certainly have. Even in the day, the, the days of classic Saturday Night TV staples and shiny floor productions, that is still a, it's a massive, massive operation. Um, you reckon that his childhood, though, may have influenced his, his life choice in the way yeah, he, he about he seems to have been greatly, greatly influenced by an inimitable uh, Irish performer, Jimmy, Jimmy O'Dea. And his, his childhood isn't you know, it's quite interesting. I mean, he's the son of a Royal Navy sailor uh, and raised primarily by his mother. His father dies when he's in his, in his youth. Moves to Britain at a young age, but always talks in interviews in later life about the influence of seeing Jimmy O'Dea, this legendary Irish actor who performed the role of Biddy Mulligan mm. uh, on a Cork uh, theatre stage. And I think that was truly transformative. And when he's in the Navy, he's in the Far East, and legend has it that, I mean, the lads are fairly bored, of course, out yeah. there, that he's performing in kind of concert parties on board ships and begins to hone this craft uh, as a female impersonator. So the first audience was the very unlikely audience of the British Royal Navy. Yeah. I think they had a sense that he was somewhat good uh, at what he was doing. So he comes home uh, and he gets demobbed uh, and then he becomes prominent in the 1960s, which of course then is a changing time in Britain. And the well. 1950s is an ugly time in Britain. I mean, there's, there's some high profile cases of, kind of uh, state homophobia in Britain in the 1950s in the courtrooms and other places. But the 60s, you know, when he's coming to public prominence in a big way, is a more tolerant time in Britain than what has come before it. And I think what's also happening on the neighbouring island and here is the rise of popular entertainment and the small screen is really becoming very, very important. Mm. You know, more and more working class homes uh, in Britain have televisions by the 1960s. So it's a real golden age uh, of performance and you don't have to go to the theatre to be entertained anymore. You just turn the little box in the corner on. And anyone watching him, I mean, the, 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 
His acting ability is so clear through the television. In fact, he's so good that people are trying to pull him towards traditional theatre and put him on a big stage. But he's more at home, you know, I think for the mass audience in a comic performing capacity. And it's a, his impersonations are legendary. Marlon Dietrich. Now, later on, Margaret Thatcher. Mm. And the humour could often be, could be quite risque. You know, one reviewer condemned him as performing dirty nightclub jokes for drunks on television. Yeah. <laughs> but the that nicknames, not the point? That's the exact point, <laughs> exactly. And the nicknames he picked up were brilliant. Danny LaRue became Danny LaRude or Danny LaBlue both of which he absolutely revelled in Yeah I would have thought that was the whole uh, the reason for being for that particular art was to try and, and make humour out of subjects that were supposed to be beyond uh, that kind of scrutiny um, The one thing that was impressive though about Danny LaRue is that he figured out how to turn a lot of that into cold yes, cash Yes this is Britain's first you know, household name drag queen so there's money to be made there uh, and I mean, he's presented to the Queen, the first female impersonator presented to the Queen while dressed in drag. I mean, the idea of that, actually, that's not so unusual in this country because we've seen mm. Panty presented yeah, yeah. to Michael D. Higgins. That, yes, yeah. that happened here in very recent times. Mm. But imagine this happening uh, back, in, back in, in 1970s Britain. And he mastered this public persona that could work in very different arenas. So he's at home on television. He's comfortable in a densely packed London nightclub or a sold out arena. And he even has the Danny LaRue Club at Hanover Square in London, where Celebrities, you know, the Beatles, uh, Princess Margaret, Judy, Judy Garland, among others, they all come to this space yeah. to see him, you know, performing. So it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. It's, it's amazing how much of a phenomenon actually became that you sort of just franchise your existence like that. Mm. And yes, so he's such a, a public uh, creature and yet little was known or at least little was said about his yeah, private his, life. His private life was just that. And as one biographer has said, you know, he wrote a, he wrote a book himself in the 1980s, Danny LaRue. And the thing is riddled with inaccuracies. You know, he claims to have proposed to a nameless girl who conveniently died in a plane crash and he announces to the papers this imminent marriage to a rich Australian woman that that's suddenly cancelled and he would always try to present himself as you know just one of the lads or just one of the fellas yeah. so this was the question that always hung around Danny LaRue in the early stage uh, of his career but we know now and in the latter years he's more comfortable admitting it he lived with his life partner and his manager Jack Hansen for, for decades but it is curious that he held his cards so close to his chest with regards to his love life uh, and his sexuality. But look, a lot changes very quickly, yeah. not just in Ireland. We think of Ireland as this society has become very tolerant in recent times. Things were somewhat similar in Britain. I mean, the law may have been different, but attitudes could sometimes uh, be the same. And it wasn't really till the latter decades of his life when he would do very important fundraising work for the gay community, for mm. AIDS charities, uh, that his sexuality, you know, was, was, was more public. Yeah. But I would say from the beginning... LaRue's sexuality, while rarely spoken of, was well known. Yeah, I suppose it's it's fascinating, though, that we nowadays, all the major celebrities, that their private life is, is as much of, of the topic of public conversation mm, and that mm, back as, in those days, that, that people just parked the, the stage persona and then what they did afterwards. Um, now, his career was also remarkable for its longevity, even though drag went in and then went out of fashion. And even here, it's been the same with drag. I mean, it comes in and out at different times. At the moment, I would say it's never been more popular, even in an international sense. You look at something yeah. like RuPaul's Absolutely, Drag Race yeah. on television, and the fact that drag Drag queens are now performing in packed out theatres like Vicar Street. You know, thousands of people come to see them perform. But throughout the 1980s, like the drag field was kind of widening and he still maintained massive audiences. Even though you had these younger drag queens uh, coming along, he remains there. He's performing on the West End, a steadfast figure kind of British television too. Uh, and the Queen then, a major fan of the work, appoints him OBE in our 2002 Queen's birthday list. I love the idea that one of the Queen's favourite performers yeah. in British history <laughs> is a drag queen yeah. in County Cork. And she's it's, like, yeah, let's wait, let's wait till the golden 
Jubilee year and then put him in the honours list. <laughs> just a really, she really, yeah. she really held out on that one, yeah. you know. But uh, I mean, his ultimately spans six decades, which is a remarkable time in the spotlight. But all the more so, given what a drag act requires, you know, in terms of the attention to detail, costume, makeup, to spend six decades in that line of work is extraordinary. And yeah. Alan Amsby uh, in Ireland, likewise, uh, the same. So the, the longevity of, of Danny LaRue's career, I think, is absolutely remarkable. I want to go back to one thing that you mentioned uh, earlier on when you were talking about his background, which is his Catholicism. And people might think, you know, people might reach conclusions based on the line of work that he's in or his sexuality, mm. but he remained devotedly Catholic. Very and, much so. And was accepted within the church Absolutely. Too. And that's an important point to make too. I mean, people talk about the Catholic Church, this great conservative force. The people in Danny LaRue's congregation the people that he met most days of his of the latter years of his life loved him, you know, and took him very much into their into their hearts. And you know, his sexuality or what he did for a living was not really a factor in their relationships. And Dan Buckley in the Irish Examiner has this great little story uh, of meeting Danny Larue backstage in his green room, and there's this great statue beside Danny Larue, and he says, "This is Mary of Knock. She comes everywhere with me. I'm a devout Catholic, and I take my altar with me everywhere. When I'm in a new place, the first thing I look for is a Catholic church so I can go to mass. So not your typical drag queen, perhaps. No, but what no. is your typical drag queen? Well, well, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a very fair point. Um, of course, there have been other Irish drag acts since. You mentioned uh, Alan Lamsby, you mentioned uh, Panty Bliss. They all, of course, tip their hats towards Danny LaRue for being such a, a literal yeah. trailblazer. And Danny LaRue died 10 years ago this year, in 2009, and there was this outpouring of tributes uh, from here and right across right across the UK. And Ireland has several drag performers of note now. I mean, Shirley Temple Bar, probably the first one of recent times yeah, yeah. Uh, that came to prominence. Panty Bliss is the one most listeners will be familiar with. And in Rory O'Neill's memoir, you know, he talks about being aware of Danny LaRue as a kid, but says that unlike neighbouring Britain, with its working men's club and end of the peer entertainment, Ireland didn't have a popular drag tradition. Yeah. But LaRue himself would joke of this and how different the two islands were. And he had this great line when he came on stage once in his native Cork. He said, look what they did to me in England. I left in short pants and I've come back in a frock. <laughs> but, you know, you know, he may be better known and better recalled in the UK than here, but he was ultimately a son and in some ways you could say he was a daughter yeah. uh, of Cork. And on Pride Weekend, more than any weekend, people like Danny LaRue, those who stood out from the crowd, yeah. uh, deserve to be uh, remembered. Couldn't be a more fitting time uh, to look back at his life and times. Donald, as ever, uh, thanks a million for talking us through that. Donald Fallon is a historian. He is the author of the Come Here To Me blog and books, volumes one and two of which are in all good bookshops now.